This morning, our scripture text is from Mark chapter 12, and we'll be reading verses 18 to 27. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. And the second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. How about the dead rising? Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. This is the word of the Lord. As a bit of context, we have been, over the last several weeks, going through different questions that were raised to Jesus in chapter 11 and 12 of Mark. And we're in this uh, kind of the home stretch of Jesus' ministry. In fact, the, what's already happened is this triumphal entry uh, into Jerusalem where Jesus has come in and people have laid palm branches down and people were saying, he is the Messiah. He's the, the king who's come to set God's people free. And they are delighting in him. But the religious leaders, well, they want none of that. <laughs> And so they go after Jesus in every way they can think of to try and undermine his authority and his teaching. And a couple groups have already done this. They've already tried to, to trap Jesus in something he's saying, and it's now the Sadducees' turn. Sadducees. It's a funny word. We don't actually know a whole lot about them. We know a little bit. Uh, we know that there was a time where the Sadducees actually gained the ruling leadership among the people of Israel, and the high priest claimed to be one of the Sadducees. We know a bit from some of the other uh, kind of works of that day and age that the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in life after death at all. Once you died, that was it. We know that, that they really had a strong sense of knowing the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. It was Moses' words, and if it wasn't in Moses' words, it couldn't be true. In fact, all the words of the prophets and the Psalms for them had to be filtered through what happened in those first five books of the Bible. They prided themselves really on knowing those first five books better than anybody else. In fact, they got to a point where they saw themselves as being kind of the intellectual elite. 
within Judaism. They were the ones who knew the truth. And everybody else was off base. The Sadducees, the text says, who don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, came to Jesus. It's an interesting way to introduce them, isn't it? You begin to wonder, why is Mark pointing that out? And, and it's because of how he unfolds their intellectual trap, trying to show that Jesus is just another foolish person who really doesn't know God's word. And so they set up this scenario, the scenario that's meant to, to expose Jesus as really not knowing what he's talking about. And they say, Jesus, if you take the law seriously like we do, then you would know that it's impossible for the resurrection to happen because of this whole thing where, where we have with marriage and children. And it makes it impossible for the resurrection to have because it would be ridiculous for one woman to have seven husbands. And it's supposed to get a chuckle from everybody. That was their intent. They would tell this whole elaborate story of a, of a man who marries a woman, takes a wife, and, and that wife doesn't bear any children for him, and he dies. And according to the law, the next brother was supposed to come in and marry that woman so that the, the name of the first brother could live on. And, and it goes through a ridiculous number of brothers, seven brothers, a sense of fullness. This gone to the full extent it can go, and then she dies, and there's no children. So if you really think the resurrection's going to happen, whose wife is she going to be? Because there's no way one woman could have seven husbands after death. And they want the whole crowd around them to go, yeah, Jesus is pretty foolish to think that there's anything after death. They are confident in their knowledge they are confident that they have everything, including God, figured out. They've wrapped themselves in a security blanket of knowledge. Their knowledge of Scripture is what's going to save them. Their knowledge of, what, of Scripture is what makes them able to handle the uncertainties of life. Their knowledge of Scripture is what gives them power and position and respect. It's their knowledge of Scripture that they've wrapped around themselves so tightly that they say, this is how it is. And anyone who disagrees with us, well, they're lost. Sound familiar? Maybe a little bit? A little history on the Christian Reformed Church that we're a part of. Oh dear, yeah. <laughs> Christian Reformed Church started as a church split from the, what is now called the Reformed Church of America back in the 1800s. And the creativity that went along with defining itself as a new church, it just took the same Dutch name for a Reformed Church in America and it tacked on one little word on the front. Anyone want to guess? Anyone who knows Dutch want to guess what they added? Farah, the true church in North America. The true, we've got the truth. 
We've got it all. Not those other people that we just left. We've got all the true knowledge to ourselves. If you want to be saved, you'll do things the way we do and you'll think things the way we think. We've got it figured out. Some of us may be sitting here going, I don't wrap knowledge around myself. That's not my security blanket. Maybe we got to think a little more broadly and ask the question, what is our security blanket? What is it that we wrap around ourselves that makes us feel like we've got it all together and everybody else is missing the boat? Maybe it's our education level. Maybe it's our bank account. Maybe it's that we've got a stable family and all our kids seem to be doing well and have nice jobs. Maybe it's that we're popular or we're good at sports or good at drawing. Maybe it's that we keep our lawn so nicely manicured and the moment it snows we shovel and in fact on these snow days we've had we've been out there seven times shoveling and our neighbor next door hmm they haven't even cleared it once we come up with these ways and all sorts of ways that that we compare ourselves to the people around us and that we we start defining ourselves by what we have and what we know and who we know and we we kind of ramp up the security blanket around us to say it's all good there's a problem with that isn't there you get a phone call from the doctor that routine test you went in for didn't turn out right your kid gets in an accident. You suddenly wake up one morning and you feel like you can't get out of bed. And all those things that we've held on to, those things that we've wrapped around ourselves to convince ourselves that we're secure and we've got it all put together, they suddenly are ripped away from us. We're left standing there exposed. We feel an emptiness come over us, a vulnerability that in our culture, we don't like to admit we have weaknesses or vulnerabilities. What do we do? You know, there's one way of reading this text. It sounds like Jesus is just being snippy and snide with the, with the Sadducees. That he's just giving back to them what they're giving to him. But I'm going to invite us to see Jesus' compassion in this text. That he's actually asking questions and responding to them in a way that helps to take the security blanket off of them and invite them to know God. And to have and find their comfort and hope and security in God alone. Jesus does two things in this text. He actually honors their story. The ridiculous story they've come up with that they don't even believe in. And Jesus honors it. This is about marriage. You actually don't know that much about marriage yet. At the resurrection, 
There's not going to be a taking of wives and a giving of daughters in marriage. In other words, he says, your understanding of marriage, where a woman's value in your culture is her ability to produce children, and her being the possession of the husband is off base. It's going to change. When the resurrection comes, there is an equality between men and women like that of the angels, which you do not comprehend right now. You think you have everything figured out, including the relationship between men and women, but you're operating on a distorted base of knowledge. Things are going to change. In some sense, what Jesus is doing here is he's peeling off that cloak of knowledge that they've wrapped around themselves where they think they have figured out every minutia of detail and says, you've missed the point. You've misunderstood how things were intended to be. You've misapplied what's happening here. A woman's value is not in being taken in marriage or given in marriage by the men in her lives. Jesus doesn't dwell there long. It's just enough to peel back that cloak. Jesus transitions. It says about that resurrection. No, that's not quite what he said. <laughs> Adelaide's talking to me. <laughs> Jesus comes at that point. He says about the resurrection, haven't you read the scriptures? Haven't you paid attention? And he goes right to the primary person, the primary authority that they recognize. And he says, you look at Moses, then pay attention to Moses. And Moses encountered God at that burning bush, that place where, where Moses knew God's holiness to the point he had to take off his shoes. Where God was encountering Moses. And Moses, before the Holy God, hears the Holy God reveal himself as I am the God of Abraham, who was long dead, of Isaac, who was long dead. Of Jacob, who is long dead. I am the God of all these heroes of your faith. Not, I was the God. Not, I once upon a time was the God while they were alive. Jesus takes the text and he points back to them the revelation of who God is. He draws them into this character and essence of God to say God is the living God. And because God lives, even though they have died, yet now they live. In some way beyond your comprehension, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive in God even though they have gone through death. And what Jesus is doing is getting at the reason the Sadducees had wrapped them so tightly in knowledge. And a fear of the unknown. A fear of what they could not explain. A fear of something that was outside of their control. And quite frankly, folks, our greatest enemy is death. It's the thing we don't have control on. 
We don't know what comes after death. We can't explain it. We can't control it. And Jesus is speaking compassionately to them to say, listen, you don't have to figure it all out. You don't have to understand it all. You don't have to explain it all. God has got you. Just like he had your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Just like he showed up to Moses, he's got you. God lives. Death is not the final word. You hear the invitation to him. The invitation to the Sadducees to let go of their fears. The fears of the things they couldn't explain. The fears of the things that were too daunting for them. The fears that drove them deeper and deeper into this sense that they had to protect themselves. They had to develop a security blanket for themselves. And God was saying, I've got you. In many ways, that's actually what we saw enacted here this morning. This little water dripping on Adelaide. The Bible talks about baptism as us being immersed into death with Jesus Christ. Going under the water into that place of chaos. The place we have no control over. And and us being immersed with Christ in there, but not left there. We talk about baptized not only into the death of Christ and united with Christ in his death, but united with Christ in his resurrection. Being lifted out of death. That death is not the final word on our lives because of Jesus Christ. Because of Christ entering death with us, we need not be afraid. Because of Christ entering death with us, we need not lose hope. Because of Christ entering death with us, we need not try to explain everything. And yet we're not left there. We're united with Christ in his death and his resurrection. We're promised a life that extends beyond this life, a life that we get to enter into with Christ that gives us hope and assurance, that gives us the ability to live in the midst of uncertainty, And to let go of those things that we have clung to that have given us a false security. There's a tradition that we have. uh, Words that we have used for centuries within the Reformed faith. They come from what we call the Heidelberg Catechism. And it's a famous one for us in this Reformed tradition. What is your only comfort in life and in death? It's right at the heart of what Jesus is doing with the Sadducees and what he's extending to all of us through this text. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Is it that you have the knowledge that you can explain every mystery? Is it that you have a complete understanding of human relationships? Is it that you figured out the biology of the world and how life and death really works? Is it that you've got a good bank account that will satisfy not only you, but your kids and their kids after them? What we end up saying is, my only comfort in life and death is that I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. 
Jesus. God in the flesh who was standing in front of the Sadducees. God who was appearing before them, offering them life and extending life to us in the presence of death, which can be so scary, saying, I've got you. I'm holding on to you. You don't need to be afraid. Come to me. Let's pray. Holy and gracious God, you grab onto us before we even have the words to articulate what you're doing. You grab onto us and hold us close through your Son, Jesus Christ, in ways that we still cannot explain. You do not forsake us or leave us or abandon us, especially at the point of death. But you've entered into it. You've entered into our greatest fears and you are at work undoing them all. We pray that you would help us to see your grace and love. That you would help us to let go of our security blankets and to trust you to hold us, to care for us, no matter the circumstances we find ourselves in. It's in you we hope and trust and offer this prayer. Amen.